But today, we're going to continue this series, and it's titled, Make Way for the Nazarene. It's going to fall in line with how we've been going here along, um, leading up to some of the prophecies, leading up to not only Christ's birth, but also his life here on earth. So today, it is called to make way for the Nazarene, and we'll get in that in a little more detail, but let's open up in prayer. God, we just come before you, and we thank you for the humble opportunity, God, to gather as brothers and sisters in Christ, God, to go through your word, God, for it to have impact in our lives, for some of us to draw us unto salvation, for others to draw us deeper into a relationship with you as our Savior. God, I pray this morning that it would be no different, that in my words would be your words, that you would be lifted high, and God, that we would leave here differently than the way we came in. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen. You see me hobbling around a little bit, it's been a rough week for Matt Corns. Last couple of weeks, I, I keep being told it's an, a picture of my age, um, but most recently, like any good father, I... Had to test out my son's new dirt bike this past week. And um, I'd like to say that I had some really awesome trick and some really cool thing that happened, but it just really is just plain embarrassing. So uh, I had Toby check me out during the week, and he said I'll be good to go for today. So I'm feeling pretty good about it, as long as I keep moving. If you see me kind of lean on the pulpit a little bit, that's kind of a readjustment period. But make way for the Nazarene. So this is going to be the fourth prophecy in chapter 2 of Matthew. And we haven't necessarily gone through the details of all those, but this particular one is the, is the fourth prophecy that happens there. And all of the prophecies in Matthew chapter 2 were based on a location. The first one being that he would be born in where? Bethlehem. Right? They were called there for the census. They, were, they came from Nazareth, but were called to Bethlehem. The second one, the idea of around Egypt, and that they were called to Egypt for security from Herod, and then they were called out of Egypt once Herod passed. And then we heard the next one about in Ramah where they, was the, they had all of the killings and the weepings of all of the ones that Herod for the, trying to, of Herod's attempt to take out the baby Jesus. But the fourth one comes to this idea that he would be a Nazarene. And I have to admit, I've obviously heard that. I've, I've you know, thought much about it as far as it was, you know, it's in the text. But getting into it was, was really quite exciting. And what I want to do this morning with this message is, front-loaded with some information on what it meant to be from Nazareth and what it meant to be called a Nazarene. And then at the end, how do we apply that in our lives today? And what does that mean to us here in 2019? But ultimately, what Matthew was showing here with this fourth prophecy, that he was concluding that Jesus had the right to reign, that he, in fact, is the king. There was nothing more that needed to be said when he got to this point of the text that this is it. Jesus is the king. Not that he became a king, he was born a king. And even before that, he was the creator from the foundations of all of the earth. And Matthew's saying, this is it. This is the one right here. This shows us there's no doubt in my mind, and there should be no doubt in our mind today, that Jesus is king. Sufficient evidence. But let's look a little bit more into what's going on with this idea of being from Nazareth or being a Nazarene. First of all, if you remember... That's where Joseph and Mary were from, right? We go back to Luke chapter 1. Uh, we see the picture that that's where, that's where they were met, and particularly that they were, as the text reads, greatly troubled, right? Because she found out this very strange thing, that she was a virgin yet pregnant. She was not married. 
Joseph's situation of dealing with that. So this is where the storyline starts, coming out of Nazareth. But now they're coming back to Nazareth again after this journey. So let's look at exactly how did they get back there. And we're going to start by reading the text. Matthew chapter 2, 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose, and he took the child and his mother, and he went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was running over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. So that was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled that he would be called a Nazarene. Before we go any further, there's something interesting there. According to historians, Herod's death happens there. You know, I just, when I, when I read this, I said, you know, there's, when you reject Christ, it's bad enough. But when you do what Herod did, how much more impact it is. Because when you look at what the books tell us of how Herod died, he had what was called ulcerated entrails, maggot-filled organs, died a horrific death. And I don't think that was by chance that that's what happened. Our God is king, and he's worthy to be praised. But as we look at this story of Nathalus, we see the hand of God and his sovereignty play out across this whole thing. You know, when you look at the text, originally it says they were doing what? It says they were going to where? To the region in southern Israel. That was the place that they were originally coming out of, Egypt. But why didn't they go there? Because they saw that Archelaus was still reigning, which was Herod's son. And although he didn't necessarily, you know, have the same problem that Herod did, he was also known for killing Jews and for being, and any Jew that lived in that area um, would have been in danger. According to history books, there was a massacre of Jews during that time under his reign. So we see Joseph once again, as he was planning to go one place in the southern region, it then says he does what? He withdrew to the district of Nazareth, the district of Galilee, which was the town of Nazareth. So we see that he's made it full circle. They started there. And I'm not saying that they ultimately may have not ended up there because it was their hometown. But I think the bigger picture for us is we see the sovereign hand of God moving Joseph and Mary and the baby Jesus around this land, protecting them and watching over them. But you might have picked up something on, the, on that text with regards to the prophecy. And I want to read that last verse in 23. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth. And here's the prophecy. So that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. You see that? Spoken by the prophets. Isn't that interesting? It says it's spoken. Did you ever, have you noticed that before? What this is called is called an unrecorded prophecy. We had type last week. There's many different ones, but this is an actually unrecorded prophecy. And you say, well, man, well how, does that, how does that play out? Like, what's the deal with that? Why is that the case? Well, this is not, first of all, not the only place we see this. In Jude, we see it as there's a reference to Enoch and a prophecy he said that's not recorded. And there's many others. But I also think about the fact that it wasn't man that was writing Scripture. It was under the unction of the Holy Spirit. And that's how we know it to be true, and that's how we know it to be whole, even though we can't find the verbatim of it. I mean, Paul did it all the time, right? He would grab parts and pieces of Scripture and bring it into the New Testament. And I love in John twenty one twenty five it says, And now there are also many other things that Jesus did. Were every one of them to be written, 
I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would have had to have been written. Think about that. The power. So these prophets spoke this. And it's, just, and it's plural. Prophets. There's multiple ones that would have spoke of the idea that he would have been out of Nazareth. That he would have been called a Nazarene. Now before we go any further, because some of you may be thinking about it just so you can rest the rest of the service. A Nazarite in the Old Testament is not the same word as a Nazarene in the New Testament. Maybe you didn't think, maybe you didn't think about that. I did. And it came up in some of our discussions. So we searched it out and kind of looked in a little more detail. But when you look at the, the study of the origin of that word, um, Nazarite would have been one who took a vow before the Lord, right? They didn't cut their hair. They didn't have any strong drink. And they stayed away from dead bodies. It was normally for a season. We saw it in Samson's life. So it was a, it was a vow that was taken of holiness. However, on the flip side, a Nazarene is somebody from Nazareth, right? Real complex, Right? Somebody from Nazareth. And as we're going to see, it's, it's what became synonymous with Christian and who we are today. And we'll look at that a little bit farther. But actually, those words look similar to English, and that's why we do that. But in the Hebrew, they're two completely different words. One of them's Nazir, and one of them's not- Notazir. It's actually two completely different things. So just in case you were going to go start Google checking that in the middle of service, I want to put you, put you at rest. You can check with me after if I messed up. But there's something important for us to grasp here, getting us back to this idea of of Nazareth. And essentially, I would say what's significant about Nazareth, but in a lot of ways, what we'll see is it's what's pretty insignificant about Nazareth. And I think that's what brings such power to what was going on here. Nazareth was located about 70 miles to the north of Jerusalem. About a three-day journey. It, uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't anything close. You know, Jerusalem was the center for, for people of intellect and knowledge and knowing and everything good. Whereas in the north, um, you know, it was just it was out of the way. Small village, rough and rustic people. Um, it's not mentioned in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned in any of the Old Testament uh, writings or Josephus. Um, and they actually have had pretty insignificant archaeological findings of that area. Um, I, I read one thing, it was kind of a joke. They said some of the stuff they found had nothing to do with Nazareth. Uh, so even what they found didn't have anything to do with it. So it's just an obscure town. You know, in that day, it's just, it's odd. I love you listen to Nathaniel's response when Philip, when they're called by Jesus and Philip's talking to him and he says, and he says in John 1, 4, uh, 46, he says, Nathaniel said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? And Philip said to him, come and see. Right? Can anything good come out of it? And what's interesting, Nathaniel lived in Cana, which was only about three miles to the south of Nazareth. So he would have had well good knowledge of what, was, what that town was like, what, it was, what the people were like. And there he is saying, can anything good come out of Nazareth? I mean, really? Is that, is that really what happens here? But I was thinking about that idea of towns. And I was kind of thinking of some present-day examples for us. And the funny thing is, is I couldn't really find anything to say that probably wouldn't be offensive to somebody. Um, But I did kind of make some generalizations for us to be able to help us better understand what was going on. You know, I mean, it's it's similar to things like, you know, we make jokes about people that live north of I-10 versus south of I-10. You know, like Louisiana stops at I-10 and it's Arkansas after that, right? Except for the Tigers. You know... Pastor Ben, a couple of weeks, but it might be a couple of months ago, kind of made a joke about people from Lafourche and Terrebonne Parish. 
You know, I've got a lot of people here from Lafouche and Terrebonne Parish, right? I'm a Lafouche transplant, you know, Terrebonne Parish by, by birth. But, you know, there's always a little jaw jabbing that goes there. But you know what I really came to? I think we ultimately end up being kind of the butt of all the jokes in Louisiana. <laughs> so maybe we would be best compared as a state to Nazareth. <laughs> We're about 70 miles from water, right? People here are rough and rustic, but they know Jesus, right? And then there's old Boudreau and Thibodeau, and they don't do us any favors either. But that's what we would have been looking at for this idea of Nazareth, right? They probably didn't have a Boudreaux and Thibodeau there. But the picture was that they were just, it was out the way. It was rough. It was rustic. There was, it was insignificant. Um, the people there just did what they did. It was a small village. Um, you know, I mean, how many people, we don't know exactly. But there just wasn't a whole lot of, it just, it does not seem like that is where the Messiah, the Savior of the world, should be coming from. And he says that, just, wow, okay. And I'm sure like any small town, it was probably full of drama, right? I'm sure everybody knew everybody's business. You know, I mean, I think about Joseph and Mary going back there, and you know people were constantly talking about them. You know, they've made it full circle, and they're like, wow, they're back. They're still alive, right? Wow, look at the kid. Oh, man, they're crazy. You know, so I'm sure everybody's ducking around the corners, and they're having to deal with all that. But Nazareth, and then we see here that the title of our message and ultimately what we're going to talk about is that we need to make way for the Nazarene. It's just, it just would not have made sense. And look a little bit later. This is after Jesus' ministry started. He goes back in Mark 6, 1 through 3. And it says, He went away from there and came to his hometown. And his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Isn't that interesting? That the despised people of Nazareth have the ability to despise their own people. Right? Isn't that strange? Don't we do that so many times? Because ultimately, that's what Nazareth's was known for. And that's a better picture of the, what the meaning of the word is, that they were despised and they were detestable. And I think perhaps, going back to spoken of prophets, I think this is what points to the Old Testament for us to see the reality of what was going on there. Psalms 22, 6 and 8 says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me and they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, and let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Or Isaiah 49, verse 7, the first part there. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and his Holy One, to one deeply despised. In Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as for one whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. I think too many times we allow where we come from to define us rather than the Christ that lives within us. Where we come from doesn't matter. Where we come from is our story, what Jesus does with our story shows, the power he has ultimately in our lives. But catch what the Lord does here with this. Here we take a reputation of being despised 
being detestable coming from Nazareth, and he chooses that place for the Savior of the world to come out. That's where the Savior of the world comes on the scene to change us for all times. He's given the name Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus has got many names, right? King of kings and Lord of lords, wonderful counselor, prince of peace. All of these things because there is no amount of names that can ultimately describe Jesus. As many names as we come up to describe him still does not show the awe and the excitement and the power that comes in his name. But the name that he's given here on earth as he walks out of his ministry is Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus of Nazareth. As we go through the New Testament, we see it over and over again when he's, he's titled this, Matthew twenty one eleven, And the crowd says, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. John nineteen nineteen, and Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, and it read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews. Think about that. As he's on that cross, the very name that's given to him, that he is a Nazarene, despised and detestable. Mark 16, 6, and he said to him, Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen and he is not here. See the place where they laid him. Eight other times in the Acts it's mentioned. And I love this one here with Paul in Acts 24, 5. It says, For we have found this man of plague, one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world, and he is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. So we see even, even after Christ, we see that this title has stayed with us and has become synonymous with, the, with first century Christians. I was reading this uh, message from Spurgeon, and he was talking, and he had an excerpt in his message there, and, I, and, I, and I'll read it to you, showing how it's in, in that day, which is not quite as near as it is for us now, but he's given this tour, and this guy says, and a recent traveler tells us that he had a Mohammedan guide through Palestine. And whenever they came to a village that was very dirty, poor, and inhabited by professed Christian, he always said, these are not Muslims, these are Netza, or Nazarenes, throwing all the spite he could possibly into the word, as if he could not have uttered a more contemptuous term. To this day, then, our Lord has the name of Nazarene affixed to him by those who rejected him. And to this day, Christians are called among the Mohammedans Nazarenes. That's us. That's us. And if you remember, not too many years back, there was the persecution in the Middle East, and they were marking these homes with this symbol. You may remember that. It, was like a, it looked like a lowercase j, kind of like a fish hook. Um, it was the Islamic extremists were doing it, and it was to mark the homes of Christians. But you know what's interesting about that, that, that symbol? It's the letter N in Arabic, and it's pronounced Nun. And what it stands for is Nazrani. For the Nazarene. So today, this name has stayed through all of history and has connected us to us here today in 2019. You might not call each other that, but the power that came with that name is more than just a place. It's the place of our Lord Jesus Christ and the Savior of the world who was ultimately despised and rejected. Despised and rejected. So this fourth prophecy, as I, go, as I read through it, just it leaves me in awe of what the Lord did, his sovereign hand playing out through there, and this idea of coming out of Nazareth and moving him around and protecting him and guiding him. But guys, that's not the, that's not the end. That's just the very beginning of what was being set up, the very beginning of what was being set up, because from chapter 2 to chapter 3 in Matthew, we see a, a massive piece of silence, almost near silent. 
in Matthew itself, when you get to the end of chapter 2, you don't, the next thing you pick up in chapter 3 is John the Baptist being in the wilderness. The other Gospels, some of them don't even start till John the Baptist, and the only one that we see a little bit from is from Luke in chapter 2, verse 40, where he talks about that, and the child grew up and became strong and filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. And that same section there when Jesus was about 12 years old, right? And they left him at the temple. That's not good parents. It took him three days. It takes me about three minutes to realize I don't have kids with me. Although we do head counts. And sometimes they're quiet. And that's when I get concerned, actually. But almost 30 years of silence here takes place between chapter 2 and chapter 3. And I think about that time. And I think, man, that's Jesus is growing up. He's with his, he's with his family. You know, he's in, he's in Nazareth. You know, I was like, you just kind of think through the things of, of what he did. You know, like, I wonder, like, you know, Jesus was probably a good little kid to raise. Right? I mean, he, he's God. You know, like, what do you do? It's like you walk up to him and say, look, what do, what do you want us to do? How would you like us to, to handle this situation, Lord? Right? It's just so strange. But to think that, like, through this time, that's, th- those are... Those are interactions, obviously, that are going on, that the Lord and Savior is growing up. He's learning. He's memory. He's fully man, but he's also fully God. In that time, we, I think we sometimes narrow in that during that time when he was doing his ministry, about 30 years, that's where we look at the temptations of his life, and they were real. But i got to believe he experienced lots of the same things throughout his whole life up until that point. It wasn't just a pause button was hit. He was there learning trades. He was working. He was doing things. He's eating. He's sleeping. Fully human and fully God. But then we come into verse chapter 3, and the silence is broken. After 400 years of prophetic silence, last person we heard from prophetically was Malachi. And yes, we saw the, some of the birth play out, but now we see who comes on the scene? John the Baptist. He hits us there hard in chapter 3, and what's his one goal? is to make way for the Nazarene. Because he knew ultimately that that man had the right to reign, the right to be in charge. You know, Israel wasn't ready for a king. They had, they had, had drifted from, from the truth. They began to just develop their own ideas and thoughts, great entitlement set into them, that they were just owed something because they were chosen. And John the Baptist comes on and he says, no, 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 not how it's going to work here. And he's in this wilderness preaching a message of preparation and specifically one of repentance because that's also what was prophesied, right? Isaiah 43, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level and the rough places made a plain. And then Malachi 3, 1, behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. So there's John. He's here. He's the fulfillment of that taking place. And I like that there's kind of two things to, what, to John's ministry here that's interesting. One, he's in a wilderness. And that's not by chance. 
Right? When, so when you think if you had a message like that to preach, you would think, well, why isn't he like in the city? Why isn't he on his soapbox letting everybody know there? But no, what does he do? He's intentionally, he's out in the wilderness by the sovereign hand of God. And not only is he in the wilderness, he's in a place that's not one that just you pass through going to. He's in a place where people had to actually be intentionally heading in that direction so that they could hear this message of what ultimately he had to do. And the idea of a herald in that day when a king was coming, there was a, a herald that would go forth, they would announce that the king was coming. And not only would they announce it, but just like it said there in Isaiah, they would make the path straight. They would physically clear a path. And if it had hills, if it had valleys, they would work to flatten it out. The king was not designed to have to go up and down hills and through bushes. It was going to be a flat, straight line, easy to get in, so that when they got to the town, everybody could see him and everybody could know. So this person went before. Well, that's the picture we see with John the Baptist. So not only is he heralding that the king is coming, he's making straight the paths. But the paths that he's talking about is our heart. It's our heart and the reality that there are things in our life that need to be brought down and there are things that need to be brought up so that the Word of God has a clean, straight path, straight for our heart. And the way that happens is through, firstly, through repentance, for us of turning from where we were. And that's what John's out there doing. He's attacking, he's attacking the hearts of the men. Because to make way in that day for a king was a big deal, but to make way for a Nazarene, it would have made no sense. You wouldn't make way for a Nazarene because we know what, that, what it dealt like. But that's what he was doing. He was making way. So my question is, what do we, what do we ultimately, what do we do with that today? It's a lot of good information, right? It's, a, it's Nazareth. It's, it's a, it helps us understand the time. But what do we do with it? Well, the first thing is, is we must see that Jesus is king. We must see that Jesus is king. You say, well, I don't see that being that big of a deal. It seems pretty straightforward. Well, think about that. For those people in that day, the king was right in front of them, and many had no clue, had no idea. We look at it now, and we think, how's that possible? But it's no different for us today. It's no different for us today. Remember back in Mark chapter 6? Jesus goes back to his hometown even after his ministry started, and there are many that have no idea who he is and actually despise him. Whether he was rejected or not, he's still king. That didn't change anything. Whether you believe it or not, he's still king. And whether you think you need him or not, he's still king. It doesn't change, church. He is king. He has the right to reign from the very foundations of the earth. He wasn't, he wasn't just brought into this for this, and this was a one-time thing. It's what he always was. He is king. He was born a king. He lived as a king. He died as a king, and he still today reigns ultimately as king. Amen. Amen. Give him praise. The Holy Spirit has to reveal that to you. And John the Baptist was there making that way. And I love what he did here in verse, and this is in John 1, 31 through 34. And this is John the Baptist speaking. He says, I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came baptizing with water that he might be revealed to Israel. 
And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. And I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. He is the Son of God. John the Baptist knew who Jesus was. He was his cousin. He had knowledge of who Jesus was. We don't see any real clear picture that he had any interaction with him before, but we also don't have a whole lot of information, period. But I think about that when, when John the Baptist is in the wilderness and he's there preaching and, and Jesus walks on the scene or teleports in, whatever he decided to do from Nazareth. How many, you know, I got to believe that most people there, probably outside of John the Baptist, had no idea who this man was, right? He just came on the scene. He's there. Because ultimately, before the Lord works in our heart, guys, we all have, we have blinders on. We can't see that he's the king. A little previously in John 1, 10 through 13, it says, And he was in the world, and the world was made through him. Yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. Jesus is king. 2 Corinthians 4, 3-4 says, And even if the gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Our eyes have to be opened there are many of you here today that your eyes may have not have been opened. You sit here and you think, I don't understand what you're talking about. It doesn't make any sense. Well, let me tell you, apart from Christ, we're going to hell. There's nothing in our own effort and our own will that we do. And we say, well, man, that doesn't make any sense. I just, I'm going to do what I want to do. And I, I, when the time comes, I'll muster up enough strength. No, church, that's not how it works. Scripture is clear that he draws our heart, those, the scales fall off of our eyes, and we see him as king, because he is king, remember, regardless of our situation. I think about many of us here today that have named Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Where would you be if he had not saved you? Obviously, we don't exactly know, but we know it wouldn't have been good. We know it would not have been good. And I think about that moment that you first believed, like we sang last week in Amazing Grace, the hour that I first believe. That's a special moment, church. And we need to think back to it regularly because it's in that moment, just as it says in Ephesians 2, that we were dead in our trespasses, which means we had no ability. And the Lord picks us up and he draws us unto him that with belief sets in of our heart that he is king. He is the resurrected son, God on earth. But you know, when we see that and when that happens in our heart, our desire should be only to do one thing, and that's to tell others about them. Many of you can remember that first time, and you left out of wherever you were, and you were probably had far more zeal than wisdom. Right? Had to put a lot of people turning heads. But you know what's interesting, as we grow in our, in our walk with Christ, what I know to happen, unfortunately, so many times is our zeal fades, 
And the impact of what the Lord did in our heart at that time becomes, unfortunately, insignificant. We are, we, that is not what the Lord has called us to. It's a continual reminder that He is King and He is worthy to be praised. So we must see that Jesus is King. And secondly, we must make way for the Nazarene. We must wake, make way for the Nazarene. That wasn't just for John the Baptist. He started the process. We continue it. We continue it, and we first do it in our heart through repentance. We first do it through repentance. And you say, well, how do I know that I need to repent? Because the Lord's worked in your heart. Because you recognize it as an issue. We have to have right perspective. John 1, 26 through 27, John answered them and he said, I baptize with water, but among you stands one you do not know. And even he who comes after me, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to untie. That's the place we have to be. That's where our heart needs to be. It needs to be in a place that we are not worthy to untie the shoes of Jesus. That our perspective is right. And when we see who we are in and of ourselves and we see Christ, we, we see shame and, dis, and despise and that we're detestable. And that the only way out of this is a repentive heart and coming unto the Father. John was dealing this with the religious leaders, right, of that day. They were, just, they were too prideful to see it. Look in Matthew 3, 7 through 10. But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees come into the baptism... He said to them, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children from Abraham. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees, and every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Now Israel felt like because that they were from the lineage of someone, that they had a right. Right? What did, what did he tell them? No. We can raise up these rocks to praise God. You're not owed anything in and of yourself. But in Christ, you are a new creation. Made new, made whole, able to exalt Christ in everything that we do. True repentance is a turning away. Not just saying you're sorry. Not just wishing you didn't do something, but being despised by your sin and what you did. I love the story of the prodigal son. Pastor Ben talked about it last week. And you see that repentance play out in his heart, right? He first all of a sudden just recognizes the wrong he's done in his life. And just sees the filth and the nastiness of his life and what he's and physically what he's dealing with and what he's become. But then he makes that decision to turn and head back home to the Father. To turn and to head back and realize that true repentance was the answer to his desperation. That where he had gotten himself was, was not where he needed to be. And that ultimately the Lord needed to work in our lives. The same thing here is for us. Turning is the key, church. It's not just recognizing it, but you have to do something with that. You've got to turn around and you've got to head towards the Father in humility. But we're not done then, right? That's just the start. That's just the beginning of it. At our salvation, the Lord gripped our heart and moved in our heart in a mighty way. 
But does it end there? No, it doesn't end there at all. The second thing is it breeds a continual desire in our heart to exalt Christ. Repentance is always the beginning of a direction of moving towards righteousness. You could be here today, you could have been walking faithfully with the Lord for many, many years. And there's still areas of your life that you have, that you have not dealt with. There's still things that you have not ultimately turned from. Repentance is a continual thing for us as we acknowledge the reality of who we are. We don't have a glorified body yet, church. We got the Holy Spirit that dwells within us. And wherever you go, the Holy Spirit goes. Wherever you are, the Holy Spirit's with you. But we still have a flesh that's been unredeemed that needs to be brought under the submission of Christ on a daily basis. That repentance needs to be a part of our daily walk. As Pastor Dom did with communion this morning, every time we take communion is the opportunity for us to what's called discern our body and to be able to bring into alignment that that which is right and good for the Lord. We must continue to exalt Christ. I love what John 3.30 says, He must increase, right? But I must decrease. Right? John the Baptist came on the scene just in a mighty way. Heralding the king. Jesus is the king. He has the right to way. Make way for the Nazarene. And at some point, he takes a step back and says, this is the Christ. Follow him. Paul said, follow me as I follow him. It's Christ and him crucified. Ultimately, our, God, our job is to know Christ and to make him known. That's what we've been called to, church, to make way for the Nazarene. Make way. It's where, we, it's where we walk out evangelism. How many of you find that easy in your lives? How many of you find it very difficult in your lives? But it's what we've been called to. To point people to Christ continually over and over and over and over and over and over again. And the last part there, that we must come as we are to Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the King. We come as we are. We come as we are. Church, the time is now. What did John say? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. This is not something for us to wait for. Some of you are here today and you say, well, I don't have the right job yet. I don't have the right marriage yet. I don't have the right family situation yet. I don't have the right income level. I don't have the right this. I don't have the right that. The time is now. Make way for the Nazarene in your heart and ultimately for all to see in our lives. I was listening to this message from this man named David Gudzik, and he said, bring the real you to the real Jesus. The real you to the real Jesus, because that's where the Lord works, is in the real you. Because anything else is what you've inflated, it's what you've puffed up, it's what you've made to see to not be a big deal. But the real you, when it goes in contact with the real Jesus, that's when salvation takes place. That's when your life is changed, and that's when you look back and say, Dear God, thank you for saving my soul. Thank you for bringing me to a place of realizing that you are the king. Jesus being from Nazareth didn't stop him. John the Baptist being from the wilderness didn't stop him. From what we know of him, he wasn't much of a, much of a specimen to look at at all. But there he was, making way for the king. Guys, we have to come just as we are.
We've got to be in a position of realizing that what we got, we can't do anything about with apart from Christ. That we need Him. We need Him to move. And as we get closer here to Christmas and we begin to celebrate the, the birth of our Lord and Savior, focus on, obviously, the Savior coming into the world. But the reality is, is that was something that's been in play for many of the years. Thousands and thousands of years. And as we finish up our service today, we're going to have some, some of our members of our worship team come on stage. And what I want us to do is I want us to reflect on that, and we're going to sing that song that says, Come Just As You Are. Right? Many of you have heard it. It's a pretty old song. And it's an opportunity for us. For many of you here today, you've named Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And for many of you here today, quite possibly, you've never done that. And this is the opportunity for the Lord to work in your heart and to change and to move in an absolute mighty way. I think they might have forgot. So I'm going to go into my notes a little more here. Maybe they'll show up. Going back, and I thought about this as I was going through this message, this idea of having the right to reign. You know, that was, what does it mean when you, have to have the, when you have the right to reign? And that's what Jesus has, the right to reign. And it's a powerful thing. It's not something to be taken lightly. It's not something to just smooth over. He was born a king. He is the king. And as they come, just in time, <laughs> you'll give a hand for Frankie. And Taylor. And this song, the lyrics go, just says, come just as you are. And the, and the reality for us is, is that's how we need to come. We need to bring the real us, remember, to the real Jesus so that real change can happen in our lives. So whatever this looks like for you, whether you stand in your seat, whether you bow, whether you kneel, whether you come to the altar, whether you say this is the moment that you need, you've decided to make a decision for Christ, take this time and focus that he is the king. He has a right to reign, and because of it, he is worthy.
God, you are worthy to be praised. God, I pray, God, that we would always come just as we are. God, that we would not be fluffed up and entitled, but God, that we would come humbly before you. God, that we would say just as John said, God, that we're not worthy to untie his shoes. But God, we serve an amazing God. God, you drew us out of a pit. God, you made us see clearly. God, may we always come just as we are, Father, and so you can do an amazing work. God, for the people's heart today, God, that you drew. And I'm believing that there are brothers and sisters here that have named you as their Lord and Savior today. God, you're a saving God. God, you're at work on this earth, God, even when we don't see. And for those that are struggling in their walk and God, things aren't going right, God, I pray, God, that you are ministering, Father. Your spirit says that you're close to the brokenhearted. God, we love you. And we thank you for this time as we prepare this week for Christmas and for just a great service and a great time. God, I pray that we would prepare for more than just that. But God, that our hearts would be made straight and our paths would be made clear. God, that you can do a work in us, Father, that only you can do. God, we love you and we thank you for your church. God, I thank you for everyone here that's gathered under the name of my voice. God, we love you. And you are so good to us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Have a great week. We love you.